Well, hello again, everyone, and uh, it's really encouraging to see a number of you back uh, uh, with us here at Woodside, and uh, welcome to those online, welcome again. I'd invite you, if you have a Bible or a device, to turn to John chapter 18 as we con continue our study through the book of John, and next week on Easter Sunday will be our last Sunday in this book. I hope God has been using it uh, in your life, and he's changing you little by little. And uh, next week, Easter Sunday, again, we will be having some baptisms. We look forward to that. If you've yet to take that step of faith, this is your opportunity. Even next week, uh, you can come forward to be baptized. And if you're wondering, uh, if you're worried that you might have to say anything, you don't have to if you don't want to. Uh, we would just ask that you make a confession, you know, have you confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you just have to nod your head, and then we'll put you under the water. So uh, that's next Sunday. How do you handle the pressures of life? In this world, every day, there are pressures. They're inevitable. And maybe you've got some pressure, uh, pressures at your job, uh, maybe you have pressures with a relationship or some relationships. Maybe there's pressure uh, at school, and some of you have exams right now. Uh, maybe it's pressures to do with your health. How do you handle that? Some people uh, like to go for a walk or a run or ride a bike to move, and that's a good thing. Uh, other people, they break down. Um, what they're going through, they're overwhelmed, and so they break it down into blocks. Here's what I can do, here's what I can't do. Sometimes setting boundaries as well. Uh, some people, uh, just when they've got so much pressure, they like to get away and recharge. They turn off their phone and, and they just have some solitude. Uh, other people uh, monitor, make sure they monitor their caffeine and sugar, right? Uh, others uh, seek support. Uh, helping them to process what they're going through. And we all really need godly people in our life to just share and uh, unload some of the pressures of life. Those are all good things, but today as we look at Jesus and how he handled pressure, we're going to see one truth that he embraced that helped him to handle pressure well. And if you learn to understand and embrace this truth of God, it will help you to better deal with exams, with that person at work that maybe um, is hard to get along with, uh, with your failing health possibly, if you learn this one truth and embrace it. Charles Spurgeon said, probably no other truth or doctrine or teaching is more comforting to the child of God than this truth. So let's look at that today. John chapter 18, and we're going to look at how Jesus handled the pressure. Beginning in verse 1, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. So Jesus finishes praying. It's Thursday night, just hours before he would be crucified on a cross, and he has just been in an upper room celebrating the Passover, instituting the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And during the meal, sometime during that meal, Judas slips out into the night to go and find the religious leaders. And Jesus, in that upper room, he teaches the disciples, when I'm gone, uh, don't let your hearts be troubled. 
I'm preparing a place for you. He teaches them to stay close to him. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He teaches them about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit will help them in their lives. And then after that, as we learned last week, he prayed a blessing for them and prayed a blessing for us as well. And so after that prayer, they make their way uh, across the Kidron Valley to a garden. So here uh, in the first century is a map of, uh, here's a map of uh, Jerusalem. <laughs> Now, today is our first day with new tech equipment, and so far, nothing's crashed or nothing's happened. There we go, okay. So back in the first century, uh, Jerusalem, and it still is today, uh, Jerusalem was on a mountain. It was built on a mountain. And uh, here's the Temple Mount. This, it was a huge complex and very high up. And across from uh, Jerusalem was another mountain, the Mount of Olives. And in that mount, there was a garden. John doesn't name it, but from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know that it was the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Gethsemane means oil press. And uh, so Jesus, uh, we believe, in the upper city, Thursday night, uh, just before midnight or so, makes his way crossing the Kidron Valley, that's between the two mountains, to the Mount of Olives, to this garden. Um, after his arrest and betrayal, he's gonna be taken back to the upper city to uh, Caiaphas' residence, and here, in this area here, he's gonna experience, uh, have six trials, and then after uh, he is condemned to die, then he will die on a cross. Some believe the traditional Golgotha is right here, others, uh, it's a little further north. So Jesus crosses the Kidron Valley, to the Mount of Olives. Now, in um, uh, the first century, on the Mount of Olives, there were a number of olive farms, and each olive farm had a olive press. And so the olives from the trees would be uh, shaken or beaten, and they would fall to the ground, be collected, and then uh, they, with a circular stone and an animal moving the stone around, they'd be pressed, and that hard, bitter fruit uh, would be crushed, and uh, from that paste, then they would make olive oil. And olive oil uh, was valuable, expensive, and uh, it was really a staple uh, in their economy. It was used for food, it was used for healing, it was used for um, anointing uh, um, rulers, it was also used for fuel for lambs. So it was a staple product. So these olives are crushed in that garden. Interesting, Jesus goes to that garden, to that place of crushing moments before he will be crushed. Now here's an olive tree. If you go there today, and some of you are going in just over a week's time, um, please remember us back here at Woodside. Um, but there are a handful of olive trees still standing and are dated uh, to over just over 2,000 years old. Uh, after the time of Jesus, about 40 years later, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. Titus came in, the Roman general, and uh, destroyed the city, and they cut down all of the oil, olive trees uh, on the Mount of Olives, or many of them, but they're a hardy tree. Look, at they're very gnarly. They're a hardy tree, and from the roots up sprang other olive trees, and so uh, these are very old trees. So Jesus goes to this garden, and then John tells us what happens next. Notice verse 2. Judas, who had betrayed him, or who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Jesus goes to the garden. Judas, who had slipped out into the night 
uh, earlier, returns to the garden. And John wants us to know that Judas knew the place where Jesus would be. This was one of the favorite places of Jesus to hang out with his disciples. During his three years of ministry, he often went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in fact, Luke tells us uh, that when Jesus and the disciples entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Hosanna to the King, um, Jesus would teach at the temple, but in the evening, he would go to the Mount of Olives. Uh, it was during, just prior to Passover, uh, and they, uh, the city of Jerusalem was packed. There were no Airbnbs to be found anywhere, and so most of the people, uh, all these pilgrims would come, and they'd camp out on the Mount of Olives, and so Jesus would go to that familiar place, and Judas knew that and met him there. So in other words, John wants us to know that Jesus didn't go to the garden to hide, but he went to the garden to be found. Interesting. John continues to tell us that Judas came to the garden with some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, as well as a detachment of soldiers. So Judas goes to the religious leaders, conspires to, to turn Jesus in. I'm going to take you to Jesus. And following him are the religious, uh, some people of the religious establishment, some Jewish leaders, the temple police. And so they make their way to the garden, but there's backup. There is a detachment of Roman soldiers. And Paul, uh, John uses the word detachment uh, or the word cohort, which in that day was 600 soldiers. Um, but we know in New Testament times it's referred to sometimes less than that. But guess uh, an estimate would be that there were about 200 Roman soldiers coming as well. Uh, do you remember the Easter play we had a, a, a number of years ago? Remember, remember that? How many Roman soldiers did we have in that play? What, like two, right? There were about 200. Why were they coming? Because they were coming to arrest Jesus and they didn't want things to turn ugly. And so they're coming with this huge mob to arrest him. Notice they're coming with uh, lanterns and torches. They're coming at night. Uh, the, the religious leaders knew that they couldn't arrest Jesus during the day or there'd be an uprising, a revolt from the people. I mean, they believed him to be the Messiah. So they do that in the darkness of night coming. And notice with weapons as well. They were the ones with the power. They were the ones who were in control. But Jesus, verse 4, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, gotta love Simon Peter, right? The Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus is in the garden. Judas comes with the group to arrest him. But John doesn't tell us something. 
He doesn't tell us what Matthew, Mark, and Luke told us, that before Judas arrived, Jesus was in agony. There was this great anguish in his soul, like he dropping, sweating uh, drops of blood. He was overwhelmed, he was troubled, and he said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but yours be done. Father, if there's any way to take this cup, the cup was God's, a loving God's judgment on our sin. It was the cross. It was his blood being poured out for us. Father, if there's any other way than the cross, please, let's do that instead. John doesn't tell us that because as the other gospel writers are focused on the humanity of Jesus, he's been overwhelmed and troubled. He can relate to us because he was perfectly human. John instead focuses on the deity of Christ. He wants us to know that Jesus is God, and he says this, that Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, that's a statement of sovereignty. That Jesus, John wants us to know, wasn't a victim. He was the sovereign savior. He was controlling all of the events. He knew that for man to be reconciled to God, someone would have to pay the price. Someone that was perfect. And he knew he had to die. He knew that 700 years earlier, Isaiah had prophesied about this Messiah, that they, they, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So Jesus knew God's plan included the cross and included suffering, and he voluntarily would move forward. He, no one could take his life, but he would give it up willingly. The religious leaders thought they had Jesus that they caught him off guard, that they trapped him. But John goes out of his way to say, Jesus was not surprised, trapped, tricked, fooled. There was no scrambling for plan B. In fact, when they came, rather than him running, he went out, he steps out and says, who do you want? Jesus is in control of all events. We see this earlier, it was read in the, the um, the scripture reading for today about Jesus coming into town riding on a donkey. Right, and just before that, uh, Jesus, a village just outside Jerusalem, tells his a couple of his disciples, "Hey, go in to the village, and you'll find a colt there tied up, right? And take the colt. And when the people ask you, what do you need the colt for? Just say the master, the Lord. He needs he needs the, the donkey." And sure enough, they go into the village. They see a donkey. They untie it. They take it. And the people are like, "Hey, what are you doing?" And they say, "Oh, the Lord needs it. Okay, take it." Wouldn't that be nice if the Lord spoke to you and said, just go to a car lot, any car you want. I'm taking that car. Hey, what are you doing? The Lord needs it, right? Jesus, from the prophecy about the donkey to the prophecy about the cross and all the prophecy in between, John wants us to know he is sovereign. He's the sovereign savior in control. He is not a victim. Uh, John continues in verse 5. Jesus asked, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he. We've come to arrest Jesus of Nazareth, and 
Jesus says, I am he. In the English, they add the word he, but the Greek word is ego ami, which means I am who I am. Now, please track with me here. 14, 1500 years earlier, when Moses is called by God to leave the Hebrew people out of Egypt, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says to God, hey, when, when the, the fellow Hebrews ask me, who, who's behind all of this? Who, who's sending you? You reply, Yahweh. The word for God uh, in the Hebrew is Y-H-W-H. There's no vowels. And this name uh, couldn't be pronounced. In fact, for, for hundreds of years, you wouldn't pronounce Yahweh. You would use the name for God, Elohim, like the powerful one, or Adonai, Lord. Later, down through time, there was Jehovah, but Yahweh was the name. And Jesus uses the Greek equivalent of that Hebrew name, Ego Ami, to say, I am who I am. In other words, he is saying, I, Yahweh, am here. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Yahweh, the God of all. Yep, that's me, I'm here. He's revealing to them his identity and his authority. Verse six, John continues. When Jesus said, I am he, ego me, the power of that name, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, we don't exactly know what caused them to fall back. We don't know how many uh, fell back. It seems to suggest quite a few. Jesus is just speaking the name. Folks, by the, in Revelation, uh, in the second coming of Christ, he just has to speak. His power is so great. Again, he asked them, because they're startled, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said, Verse eight, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. So even as Jesus is being arrested, he's caring for his disciples. You've got a warrant from the, the high priest, an official warrant for my arrest. Here, take me. But you don't have a arrest for these 11 disciples. Let them go. He's caring for his disciples even while he's being arrested. And then John adds this, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. And when were those words said? Just a few moments earlier in, in the high priestly prayer. And then verse 10, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Simon Peter had a sword. It was a short sword. It was like a long knife. And he had it inside his uh, tunic. Uh, it was a concealed weapon, if you will, and uh, he pulls it out. Why did he pull out the sword? Because Peter doesn't understand that the Messiah, the one he'd been following for three years, Jesus, had to die on a cross. He was taught in grade school, like every other Jewish uh, person, that the Messiah would come and he would take the throne, but they left out the part. They didn't understand the part in God's upper story, God's saving plan, that the Messiah would have to die on a cross first. So he thinks the plan's going south. He thinks he needs to stop the arrest. He thinks things are spiraling out of control. And so he cuts off this poor guy's ear, Malchus, and uh, the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus healed him so we can all take comfort in that. But notice what Jesus says to Peter in the garden after Peter strikes 
one of the high priest's officials. Verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Peter, put your sword away. Now why was Peter to put his sword away? Jesus didn't say, uh, Peter, do the math. We have, and Luke tells us that they had two swords, the Last Supper. We've got two swords, and they've got about 200. Just, just put it away. Didn't say that. He didn't say, uh, Peter, uh, and he did say this, but John doesn't record it. He did say, Peter, those that live by the sword die by the sword. Peter, I'm about stopping the, the cycle of violence. You know how people hate each other, and then they just, there's violence? Not if you're a follower of me, so put it away. What did he say? He said, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? That is speaking of the sovereignty of God. Peter, in the lower story, I'm being arrested, but in the upper story, God is working out his eternal plan to save sinners, and it involves a cross. And I have to drink the cup, I have to die, I have to suffer because of a plan. And notice, it's not the Jewish leader's plan, it's not the Roman's plan, it's the Father's plan. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but yours be done. Do you see how Jesus handles this pressure that unlike any other human being was so great by embracing and understanding the sovereignty of the Father, that there is a bigger story going on. Then John records these, this, verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. So Jesus makes his way across the Kidron Valley, goes to a place uh, that he often go, goes to. Judas is familiar with that place, goes there uh, with a mob, they arrest Jesus, and then they take him, and then uh, on Good Friday we'll talk uh, about the trials, but they take him to the first of six trials. But notice where they take him. They don't take him to Caiaphas first. Now Caiaphas was the current high priest. He was the one that oversaw the official warrant for Jesus' arrest. Why didn't they take him to him? Why did they take him to Annas, who was the former high priest? Well, if you look in history, and by the way, if you're new to the Bible, one of the things that makes the Bible so trustworthy is that we, it's rooted in history. We can check, is this, did this happen or not? But in history, um, when the Romans were in power in the first century on this in the far eastern corner of the, of the empire at the time, uh, the province of, of Judea and, and that area, they said to the Jewish people, you can have some jurisdiction over your people. You can have some power. You can have a high priest. But if you don't keep your people at peace with Rome, we're going to come in and we're going to crush you. And so the Jewish leaders had a bit of power and the guy at the top was the high priest. And Annas was put there by a governor. 
the governor was, if you go to Luke chapter 2 years earlier in the Christmas story, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and this census was first taken while who? While Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Quirinius was a real governor. He ruled over Syria, just to the northeast, but the the province of Judea was also attached. Well, Quirinius um, was ousted from his position as the high priest, and another governor came to be, and his name was Gratus, and Gratus put Caiaphas in power, and Gratus was the predecessor of Pontius Pilate. So, why did they take him to Annas' place? Because according to Jewish law, a high priest uh, had, that term was for life. Caiaphas was a real high priest, but they took him to Annas. Just a little note there about the history. I, I don't know about you, but that just encourages me in my faith. Real people, they take him, and then the trials begin. So from our text today, what does John want us to know about the betrayal and the arrest? First, he wants us to know that Jesus is no victim. In the midst of suffering, and by the way, God's plan does include suffering. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of hatred and pain and darkness and conspiracy, Jesus is no victim, that he's in control. He goes out to meet them. Interesting, Jesus in that garden where olives are pressed to make something valuable, Jesus goes to that garden and soon he will be pressed and we get to experience the fruit of his salvation. Jesus is no victim. But also John wants us to see that Jesus never fails. The sovereign savior never fails. In the midst of all of these events where Judas uh, betrays him, in a few moments Peter's gonna deny him, the religious leaders are hating him, the Roman soldiers are gonna be cruel to him. In the midst of all of that, he's faithful to go to the cross. Why? Because in God's eternal plan to save sinners, to save you and me, Jesus was willing to go through it. He was to be faithful. And today, if you've been hurt by some human being, maybe a few human beings, and you carry that pain, and you're like, I just really can't trust anybody, today, be reminded or hear this, you can trust Jesus. He never fails. And you say, well, what's the proof of that? Well, the proof is he went to the cross for you. He fulfilled the Father's plan because he loves you so much. The truth is, God is sovereign over all events, and that includes all events in your life. Scripture from Genesis to Revelation talks about his sovereignty, not just his rightful rule, because he's our creator, but his loving rule. We have a God who loves us. You know, this brings to mind Psalm chapter two. It's known as a messianic psalm. David wrote it before uh, Jesus with prophecy. There's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, but David writing this psalm talks about people in the lower story thinking that they're in power and control, but in the upper story, God is so sovereign over all of that. Psalm chapter two, he says, why do the nations conspire? Why do the peoples plot in vain? 
Why do the kings of the earth rise up? Why do the rulers take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed? Saying, you know, we're gonna break the chains. We're gonna throw off the shackles of this God. He's not in control. We're, not, we're in control. And we read, the one enthroned in the heavens laughs. He laughs at that folly. It's kind of like a father with his two-year-old, and the two-year-old says to dad, dad, I'm in control. I can take you down anytime I want to, right? The father kind of chuckles. No, David says, God the Lord has installed his king on Mount Zion. In other words, in the lower story, people think they're in control. They're not. God is working out his eternal plan. And for you, that means that that plan in your lower story may include car accidents or a miscarriage or an abuse or a loss of a job or some loss. And we are tempted to just like turn from God and say, God, you know, you're not worth following. But instead, like Jesus, Father, not my will but yours be done. I am still trusting you. And God, in these pressures that we face, how do we handle the pressures? It's good to go for a run. It's, it's good to take a time out. But the most important thing is that you reframe everything you're going through with the sovereignty of God. And God has said to you and to me, when you are pressed and you experience those trials, Things aren't out of control. I'm working in those trials. Paul would say, and we know that in all things, not just the good things, but the bad things, God works. God is still at work, even though we may doubt that. God works for the good. He's a loving, sovereign God. God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And Paul, that's why he could say as well, we are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Because God is working out his plan, and we're gonna keep our faith in him. That during these pressures, God uses them to grow us, to become more like Jesus. Oh, Jesus, please help me to be more patient, more loving, more forgiving. He uses them to use us. People see our faith and it speaks and impacts other people. But also, God draws us through these pressures to himself. More than one person has said to me, and I could say the same thing, that there are certain things we go through in life and we look back and we say, I'd never ever go, wanna go through that again. But it was during that pressure, that trial, that I experience God in a deeper way. I have a stronger faith in him. So today, will you, as you face these pressures, will you trust him and say, Father, I'm praying that this cup, I'm praying that this might change or that might change, but your will be done, not mine.